a way to um, define success is to not have crazy town huge goals, but to actually in very specific terms, give yourselves attainable, measurable goals that you're, that are not going to make your healthy monitor crazy. So we're not talking about graduating from college yet. All we're doing is talking about going to every single class for the first three weeks. Um, we're not talking about you and I were talking about like, yes, the giants want to win the Super Bowl. But we're not talking about that. We are talking about, can you snap the ball so your quarterback can then make a touchdown? Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Thank you guys for joining us. This is episode 25 of Capping Down. And I know that this is like a super busy time of the year. So thank you to those of you who are joining us live. And also for those of you who have made time in your day um, later in the week to listen to us. Matt, do you listen to podcasts? Um, I listen to a few. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've, what? you've, you've had me listening to some, uh, podcasts on you know true crime things oh yeah i listen to a lot of murder podcasts i'm usually like doing the dishes or waiting in the line for to pick up my daughter like that's when i do my podcast listening so um hi all i'm rachel phillips buck vp for student success various resources this is matt boisvert our president thank you for joining us for cap and gown where we talk about things going on in higher education. You've joined us for our fall series where we are unpacking um, Tinto's six conditions for uh, student success on a campus. And today we are talking about setting expectations. So I'm very excited about that piece. Um, if you haven't connected with us uh, either on LinkedIn or signed up to join this in live, every Tuesday, please do just go to taplink.cc slash Ferris resources. Also, this is where you can find our um, earlier shows. If you're just now starting to join us, uh, a lot of great um, shows that, that we've done. And Rachel, you have done with Anthony Melcury, and he will join you next week. So yeah, looking forward to that. It's always a fun time with him. Okay, so I want to talk about our roadmap, um, but first, Matt, I want to tell everybody about this, which is my new favorite toy. This is called oh, the Rocket wow. Book, for those of you who can't see it, um, and the Rocket Book is like paper that you can write on and then erase, so it looks just like normal paper, um, and then you write on it with a pen, and then you can wash it off and like take pictures of it and get it sent various places. So Ferris is adopting these and I think everybody loves them. It's like, it means I don't have 75 notebooks everywhere. Yeah. So, so rocket book so uh, is awesome. So you set the app up and then you can take a picture in the little QR code. And at the bottom, you can check off where you want that um, to be sent as a PDF. Susanna saying she used it also, and that's right. You can't leave it on too long because if you do, then it will be permanent forever. Um, but it's also really interesting to see like how much stuff I write down that I don't actually need forever. <laughs> like I just need to write it down because it helps my brain. And then I'm like, that's not going to be useful to anyone. I think, so. Rachel, I think you're just trying to feel better about yesterday when I spilled a little bit of water oh. on my rocket book and then you wiped off the whole page. That's okay. Of your to-do list. I didn't need that anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry about that. That is a problem. Um, okay. So let's talk about a roadmap. Uh, it's pretty long today, but we're not going to spend very much time on any one of these things. So Matt, will you go over this and then I'll do the state of the union? Yeah. So as we're talking through Tinto, of course, we'll start off with state of the union, but with Tinto, we're going to really focus on expectations and more specifically high expectations. And then as different ways that you and I have talked about and think about expectations, we'll talk about it from a challenge and support perspective, growth mindset, which really fits right in. Um, a thing that you taught me, which is unconditional positive regard. And, um, and then something I'm really passionate about, T 
tangible reminders of achieving high expectations. And then finally, we'll, we'll wrap up with uh, another thing that you introduced to me called Healthy Monitor and what that looks like for you, everyone joining us as you're thinking about setting high expectations and then also um, encouraging your students, you know, in, in how to manage that. So absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about State of the Union. A couple of really interesting things going on this week. So, you know, COVID's influx and Delta and whether or not you're requiring vaccinations and schools are shutting and there's all that stuff going on. Not a lot of um, really interesting news there. That's just, I know you guys are dealing with it and trying to figure out how to make that a better process than it was last fall. So bless you all for that. I do wanna talk about transfer students. So colleges and universities lost almost 200,000 transfer students between July of 2020 and June of 2021, which is almost three times larger than the number of students they lost the year before. So obviously COVID is impacting those uh, students. Students who were transferring, so from a two-year institution to a two-year institution, or from a four-year institution to a four-year institution, that number is down 11.9%. So that um, kind of lateral transfer counts about 60% of the transfer enrollment decline from two to two, four to four, right? Um, what's interesting is transfer students from a four-year institution to a two-year institution, their decline is 16%. Wow. Which is pretty remarkable. But thinking of many of the schools that we serve, students transferring from a two-year institution to a four-year institution, so a smaller, private, kind of liberal institution, is about the same as last year. They only lost 1.3% of that population. So mostly we're seeing the difference two to two, four to four, or four to two. Yeah. So, and, you know, we serve a lot of great community colleges and they're working really hard to be able to serve their students. Um, I think you told me McLennan is doing an awesome job this semester of um, increasing their enrollment for. Well, I mean, they definitely were hit hard by COVID as most community colleges were. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is a, a big reason why we're seeing some, some impact. Um, obviously, but for them, they're, they're getting back up with their enrollment. They're not seeing, you know, huge increases, but they are getting back to where they were. So that's yeah. encouraging. Love that. It's a great school. Okay. You and I talked last time we were together about this idea of, um, what did we call it? Stranded credits? Yeah. Right. And how schools were thinking strategically about how do we give students their transcripts and their credits so that then they can re-enroll so they can be successful. So along the same lines, I want to talk to you about schools that are thinking about tuition costs and then also scholarshiping. Okay. So there's a school, Cornell College, not to be confused with Cornell University. The other Cornell College, College the other Cornell, it's a liberal arts college in, in Iowa, a very small city. They, their students are doing block plan, which you'll remember is like one class for three weeks. I love it. Me too. I would have been a way more successful student if I had had that because I'm like, I want to sprint. I'm not great at the marathon. So instead of enrolling in four to six classes each semester, they're just focused on one subject and they, they march through that three and a half weeks. Yeah. Um, and then it's over and they move exactly. on to the next. Okay. So the co the total cost of attending Cornell College, including everything, this is like tuition, room and board, personal expenses, all of that stuff is $63,000 a year, okay? So remember this is set in the Midwest where so many students go to their flagship state universities because it's gonna be way cheaper um, and they have a great reputation in the Midwest. So Cornell College started the Freeway Scholarship for students in five surrounding states, Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, and Wisconsin. And any student who's admitted to Cornell from one of those states gets a scholarship every year of $30,000, which, wow, that's amazing. If you're a transfer student, you get $25,000 and there's no test 
There's no income requirement. It's just, if you're admitted to the college, they're going to give you that scholarship. So those six states, the five states in this program plus Iowa, produce about half of Cornell's students. And what they're trying to do is tell families who wouldn't necessarily consider a private uh, college that it actually is within your means. So you can come to Cornell and pay about $3,000 more a year than you would to go to one of those flagship universities, which I think is really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And then they, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, and then they get to say why, so that extra $3,000, these are all the things that you get from being on our In this experience, exactly. So they're really thinking students wanna remain closer to home in the pandemic, right? They're interested in these other ideas. This was based off of the Oglethorpe University, Um, So I don't know if you remember this, but several years ago, they said that they would match public tuition for every state for members of that freshman class. They do have some benchmarks. So you have to have like a 3.8 GPA or a certain test score. Um, But before that program, they had 300 freshmen enrolled. Every year of the program, the college has attracted more than 400 first-time students. So they've really done an awesome job. It's made a huge difference to say, we're just going to match your in-state tuition for those universities that you might be considering. Um, Also, Seattle Pacific University has done this in tandem. So they first adjusted their tuition by reducing it by a quarter. So it's $35,000 and also said they will um, match uh, the price of a public college from Washington State, California, Hawaii, and Oregon. So that kind of combination, they saw a 5% increase in yield rates from students in those states. I want to know why they left Idaho off the list. Sad. To Hawaii. Or Idaho. Listen, here's why I want to talk about this. Because this um, senior vice president of a consulting firm, is like, hey, just remember that sticker price and financial aid awards are important in the college selection process. But what primarily drives student decision-making is the value proposition, which we have been talking about this for a long time. The lived experience, both academic and co-curricular and social. In other words, at the end of the day, students are driven to apply and enroll at an institution because they highly value the experience they're gonna receive every year Um, at that institution, academic programs, how they play out, academic and career advisings and outcomes, opportunities for experiential learning, community service and engagement, study abroad opportunities, and their social experience. So I love this because the schools we serve provide all of those things beautifully. Absolutely. And it's such a real interesting idea to say, we are going to take out the financial question and just talk to you about how paying the same amount for this university is going to give you all of this added value that you're not going to get at a big state university. So I love that. I think it's a really interesting thing to um, explore at an institute. Well, I think for our schools, you know, really articulating their unique value proposition, the value that they deliver in the experience that a student will walk away with, that's obviously really important. And I think what, um, as you're pointing out, so many times families are making the college decision based on price first yeah, and, and not uh, weighing the, all of the, the value, value benefits of, of our yeah. smaller schools. Yeah, I agree. Okay, two more, which I think are really interesting. So one is about women's colleges. Right now, women outnumber men at colleges. Uh, There's 10 million women. There's 6.8 million men. So really interesting. However, female-serving institutions have, um, in 1960, there was 230. Now there are 50, which we are really honored to serve several of those. Think about Collins and Alverno. Salem College in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, is doubling down on their service to women. So they are focusing on um, health sciences and leadership, which apparently is in really high demand with high school girls. So that's awesome. I love that. Um, Also, Texas Women's, which is just up the road from us in Denton, um, it has its co-ed, but primarily women. 
what I love about them is that they have a really diverse population. So um, a third of the Texas women students are Hispanic or Latino, 17% are Black or African American, and 37% are white. Here's the population they serve, Matt, which you and I are always talking about, like, who's coming? Figure out how to do that really well. They serve students who have aged out of foster care. So students who now don't, they're like 18, so they're emancipated. That population does not often go to college, but they have a whole program for students who've aged out of foster care and have a reputation in the country of being able to serve that group really well, which is amazing. That is amazing. We we really need to unpack all that they do to help. Yeah, let's go talk to them because that is exactly what we're saying. Like, don't ask for different inputs, figure out what your inputs are, and then figure out how to be really amazing at them. So I love that. Um, Although there are some smaller colleges who have served women traditionally who are going um, either out of business or opening up more broadly, which I don't think is that surprising, but these schools that are being uh, really successful have identified these specific niches that they can serve students in um, really, really well. So it's great. Uh, Chatham used to be an all women's school. um, That's right. Recently, four years ago, started. And Mary Hunt Baylor used to be an all-women school. True. So, okay. Last thing, we've got two schools um, that are 100 years old that are led by women. They have uh, female presidents, and they are killing it. One of them we are honored honored to serve, which is Loyola University in New Orleans. They have their largest class in their 113-year-old history this fall. Wow. Wow. 25% enrollment increase over 2020-2021 with even stronger academic requirements. So they raised the bar and got more students. They also are a really diverse campus. So 54% of their students are students of color um, with the majority of those being Hispanic students. And they are a test blind campus and have a lot of personal touch and admission. So they're just saying like, hey, we think tests are a, a sort of restrictive to students that we want to come here. So we're not going to do it. Well, what I love is, so for them, they've demonstrated in a, in a incoming class where test is optional, but they, they've already demonstrated they've been really good yeah. at being test blind. So, for um, sure. they, so they have the right language uh, for incoming students to hear. Yeah. Um, and then Sweet Briar is the other one. Oh, sorry. Did you want to say something more about well, that? I would just say, you know, definitely praying for New Orleans overall right now. And think about, I'm so excited about that success, but definitely um, as they're dealing with the hurricane and, and all of that. Yeah. Um, Sweet Briar is the other one that's seen really amazing success. You remember that it was going to shut down several years ago. The board members were like, we're just going to auction off all the money or all the property and shut it down. And all the alumni were like, how about if you don't, yeah. right? Um, their most recent enrollment numbers last year were 354, but this incoming class is 475. So wow. with 205 new students, um, also some transfer students, they reduced their tuition 32%. And then they also have changed their liberal arts model. So they're investing in a lot of different things about values and skills and knowledge for modern leadership. And, um, added a softball team. You might remember that they're very successful, have a successful equestrian team, but they're really doing an awesome job. So we would like to say to President uh, Tanya Tetlow of Loyola and then also Meredith Wu, awesome job. We love it. Well, I love Sweetbriar. I mean, we've both looked at their campus and it's just gorgeous. And it was, it was, it's just one of those stories where um, it's encouraging to me because they, when we talk about, they know their value proposition. They um, got a lot of alumni coming back and supporting them and being able to say like, no, 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 this is, this is a college that changed my life. And I didn't, I, when given the, the um, option of it closing or continuing to change lives of, of women in the future, I'm going to invest. So yeah, it's just a neat story. It's awesome. Okay. So let, oh, I'm supposed to say, this is my new thing that I'm trying to remember to say. Okay. And that is the state of the union. That is the state of the union. 
Okay, so let's dive into our topic today, which is about expectations. You guys remember that we're talking about Tinto's speech that he gave where he listed out these six conditions for student success, talked about commitment last week. Today, we're talking about expectations. Remember that this is in light of our retention equation, which is inputs, the students that you're bringing, plus your institutional factors, the conditions at your institution equals retention and student success. And so obviously we're spending a lot of time right now and over the next couple of weeks in conditions, institutional factors, but we also spent the last two weeks talking about inputs. So if you wanna go back and revisit that, happy for you to do that. Um, and the foundation of this is that we are giving access to different groups of students, but if we are not supporting them, then that is not an opportunity for them, which uh, Tinto very famously said. So the first thing I want to talk about is why high expectations are included in Tinto's list of conditions for student success. Why are they important and why did they make uh, this list? So Matt, can you lead us through that a little bit? Well, so one thing that Tinto said was no student rises to low expectations. And I think that's really important to think about. Uh, Rachel, one, one thing that, that I um, like about you and I know about for both of us, we were raised by parents who had high expectations. We also were transformed by teachers who held us to very high uh, standards. They had high expectations for us. And when I look back and think about the students who changed my life, who were um, really invested in my growth, it wasn't, it was never the teacher who had low expectations. And it was always those teachers, fifth grade, Mrs. Cooper for me, she was remarkable. Um, and, yeah. and the way that she um, worked with me, but, but man, she was tough. And so when I think back on, and I think for everyone listening, you know, when, when you think of the teacher who changed your life, that teacher had high expectations for you. And I, and I would say, well, what's the opposite? So what does a low expectation mean? And to me, low expectation means low confidence. If you don't have, um, high expectations for me, what you're telling me is you don't have high confidence in me. If you have low expectations for me, what you're telling me is you have a very low confidence that I can achieve something. And so when this, just thinking about expectations, it really resonated with me because, so not only have we experienced it as um, from our parents, but our teachers, and also you and I working at university and, and, and teaching and working with students who um, especially those who were at risk, we have seen the transformation that comes from setting high expectations and watching those students achieve those things. So, yeah, I, I see this all the time with parenting. So this idea that when your kids are struggling with something that you would say, Hey, you can figure it out. I have confidence in you right? Which is saying, I'm not going to step in and fix that for you because I believe that you're smart enough and going to work hard enough that you can, can figure that out. And that really is empowering. My parents were great at that, like to a bizarre degree where they would just, I mean, I would drive from Texas to Indiana in the middle of the night, yeah. 18 hours by myself. And they literally were never like, Hey, are you sure you can do that? They were like, okay, we'll see you when you get here. So helpful because what I knew that that meant is my parents thought, Whatever goes on, Rachel's going to figure out how to manage that. We have really high expectations and a lot of confidence in her ability um, to manage things, which has served us, uh, you know, really well. I also would say everybody think about the teacher who said, mm, it's not good enough. What you've turned into me is not good enough, right? Um, my teacher too was fifth grade and he, I did a report and I brought it to him. And afterwards he was like, Rachel, I'm disappointed. This is not good enough for you. And I cried and I worked harder than I'd ever worked in a class before for him. Cause I didn't want to disappoint him. If he said I could do better. Yeah, I knew yeah. I could. Those are the stories that get cemented in your brain when we're talking about high expectation and communicating to our students. I have confidence in you. You can do really well. Now I want to tie that to challenge and support because I think that's really important. Um, but I also, before we move on to that, I want to say, um, Tinto is writing about this for faculty, but we are saying in student development and on the academic side, there are places every single day where we're setting expectations. 
think I said last week about our friend who changed it from student conduct to rights and responsibilities. You are setting expectations when you do that, right? When you talk about what happens in the res hall, when you talk about how we're going to do intramural sports, when you talk like those are well, all places that you're setting expectations. I was thinking you were telling me about our, our school that renamed financial aid to financial wellness. Yeah. Well, that sets a different expectation just on the name. Absolutely. So um, this idea of high expectations is really important. Also, just like a side note, if you guys have not seen Stand and Deliver, it is a awesome movie. And it I just found out as we were preparing for this that Matt has not seen it. I'm not. It is a great movie about teachers setting high expectations and their students achieving. So I'm going to, that's what I'm watching tonight, Stand and Deliver. It's great. Okay, so let's talk about your role in setting these expectations, because like I said, faculty, obviously, they have this academic rigor that they're devoted to and they're really striving towards. But those of the rest of us are setting high expectations as well. So, Matt, one way that we've talked about this is um, in, in this idea of challenge and support. So how a thing is hard, but then also how we come alongside and support our students to be able to be successful. Um, and you have some good examples of this in your own life. Yeah. So with Sanford, I mean, this idea of um, just, you know, not just watching someone struggle, but you have a responsibility to, if you're, if they're going to be challenged by what you're setting before them, give them the support. Don't do it for them, but give them the support. So yeah, Which is okay. exactly what Tinto is talking about, right? When he's like, access without support is not opportunity. Like, right. here's this thing, you can't do it, okay. Versus, no, we're gonna walk alongside of you and give you support for those challenges. So I've, I've told the story before of Rodrigue, um, one of my best friends, roommate in, in college. Uh, Rodrigue's like his adopted son. Rodrigue's at, at uh, university and I help him move out of his freshman uh, res hall. And my son was learning driver. I was teaching my son how to drive. And I, and I mentioned that to Rodrigue and, and he said, Oh, I'm taking my driver's test on Tuesday. That's great. Um, so we were, as we were talking about that, I said, well, do you have a car? Would you like, would you like to um, use my car? And he said, Oh, that would be fantastic. And I said, well, why don't we meet up on Sunday, which happened to be mother's day. And uh, that way you can become familiar with the car so that when you go take your test, they see that you're comfortable, you're in the car that you're familiar with, you know where all the things are. So I went over to, to um, let him drive the car and become comfortable with it. And I should have known in the beginning when I said, okay, so they'll wanna make sure that you've adjusted your mirrors, you know, and, and he rolled down the window to adjust the mirror. I said, no, I've got a little button for that. And that was your first clue. It was a clue that he needed to become familiar with the car. So there was some definite challenge there. But then when he put it in reverse and he didn't look behind him, you know, that was the second clue. But the third big clue was when he he turned at a stop sign, he didn't stop, and then he popped a curb and we almost hit a light post. And I feel like the summary is just you almost died five different ways right. before you realize, oh, I'm in a challenge well, and support the, scenario. The right. Big, the big aha was was when he he stopped the car in the middle of oncoming traffic they're coming at about 60 miles an hour and we really almost died and i said go 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 man go and i had to put the car in reverse to get it out of the road so we didn't get hit that's when i said hey i don't think you're ready for your driving test on tuesday and so i went and i um drove the car back uh dropped him off and I called my old roommate and I, and I said, Hey, he's not ready for the driving test on Tuesday. But now that I know this is a challenge and support thing, I want to teach him how to drive. And so we spent um, almost a year, um, you know, nine months on teaching him how to drive. And I'll say this for, for me being in that place and, and then understanding. So one, when you're teaching someone how to drive, you cannot have low confidence, low expectations in that. I mean, if you have low confidence, you really shouldn't teach them because you're not going to. Because it's important. Them. Because it's really important. You cannot mess up, or it could really hurt someone. And so, so, but with Rodrigo, I had 
high expectations because I had high confidence. He could be successful in this. And we were just going to walk through the path of how you learn how to drive. So and- Matt, what I think is really interesting about that is the idea that so many times it's like, if you have a college student and you don't know that they've never been to college before, that they don't have high academic motivation or goals and that they don't have a vision for how college is going to change their life. You just get in the car with them and they're popping the curb and they're doing all this stuff. And you're like, oh my goodness, wait, 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 wait hold, hold on. Right. Versus if you have gotten to know them and you understand what's going on with them. And from the get go, you're like, Hey, here's how you adjust the mirror. Yeah. Now you put your hand on the seat and you turn around and look right. That just uh, kind of assuming that they know what they're doing versus what we're saying, which is a lot of times they don't. And so they need you to give them the expectation so that then they can deliver it because they don't know what's appropriate and what's expected, right? Absolutely. I think one of the um, interesting parts in all of that is, is that you can't teach someone how to drive by driving for them. Right. The only way you can teach them how to drive is by being that support, um, being able to give them the, yeah, exactly, Lisa. They don't know what they don't know. And so um, you're going to give them what you have, hopefully years of experience to be able to, give them some, some quick starts there so that they can be successful. The other story that comes to mind is um, the other side of it, which is sometimes um, you're in the face of challenge and support. And and the best thing to do is say, let's not do that right now. Let's, I'm not ready to support you. You're not ready for the challenge because I can't support you. So when my son was seven years old, we had a newborn, um, my, my, I was going on a, on a trip and my son needed a new pair of shoes and he had been wearing Velcroed shoes and it was, you know, seven, it's time for him to be tying his shoes. But I, I took him to the shoe store and I, and I looked at his sweet face and I thought about if I'm gone and I come back home with laces, what that means is my wife who's working with a newborn um, is going to have to teach him how to tie these things. That's going to be a challenge and she's going to have to provide the support. Yeah. Cause I'm not going to be there for the, for the first few days of this where it's going to be really challenging. So I did punt and I bought him Velcro shoes and you know, it's fine. We got to the, the next pair and he learned how to tie his shoes. So Matt, the thing is that um, we do this all the time in higher education where we have a new freshman and we say, you can't take more than 12 hours because you don't know yet. You're not going to take 18 or you shouldn't be working more than 20 hours, or you probably should go to bed earlier or right. There's all of these places where we try to say, Hey, that's going to be too much of a challenge for you to be successful right now. Let's not. Let's just wait until you learn how to be in college before you take the 18 or let's just wait before you know how to be in college before you've decided that you're going to work those 40 hours. We're always trying to navigate that um, attainable challenge, challenge you can be successful at. I don't want to set you up for failure, which is what would have happened if you had bought bought Aiden those shoes, right? I'm setting you up to not be successful. Yeah, absolutely right. So this idea of challenge and support is so important. Also, though, we talk about this in terms of mindset. So, you know, Carol Dweck, this is the book. It's genius. If you haven't read it called Mindset, it's um, we think about it all the time. I could do like five hours on this book. So I'm just going to give you the summary of of growth mindset, which is dot, dot, dot yet. Okay. That's the summary of a growth mindset. So, um, you know, we learned this when my daughter was in, in kindergarten, her sweet teacher, when the students would say, I can't read, she would say yet, because that is not fixed. This is a thing we're working on. We're making your brain bigger. We're going to, it's not like, that's how it's always going to be. And somewhere along the line, some adults lose that where it's like, I am smart or I'm not smart. 
I can be successful or I can't be successful instead of understanding that this is an, an achievement. You work hard. You take free throws in the backyard until you're really good at them. Or you read and read and read until you get faster, right? Um, So this idea of I'm not good at that yet. And you and I have talked about it in terms of first-generation college students saying, I'm just not college material. And that is a very fixed mindset that says I tried and it's just not in me and there's nothing to be done about it. And it's such a harmful perspective um, to, to say, and, and they don't have parents who can say, are you, have you lost your mind, Rachel? It's your first test in college. Like, of course, you're not going to do well. You've got to practice. You don't know. You need to learn how to study. You've never done this before. Work harder at it. You'll, you'll get better. Right. Well, I think that being you listeners are the voice. You can be that positive voice for that student who doesn't whose parents don't know what the right thing to say is or how it really fits. Um, you're, you can be the expert in guiding them through that. Yeah. And that's, that's a really important role that you can, um, you can take one of, one of the interesting things is as Dweck talks about the, the impact. So for a fixed mindset person, how a lot of times they just kind of look at it as, you know, there was this external thing that kept me from being successful in that. So I'm just not going to be successful in that. And, and that's what you were saying about college material. Am I college material um, versus this is something that I can look at within myself and say, I am college material. This is what that means. Or I can learn how to be college material, which I think is so relevant because it's right. like nobody, yeah. start, very few people start out college material. Very few people like sail into their first semester and they're like, I'm doing a great job. I've got this down. What we do is we practice. We say like, this is how I'm going to learn to study. This is how I'm going to be successful. This is how I'm going to introduce myself to my faculty member. And so as we do college material person stuff, guess what? We become college material, but it is not a thing that you are or you are not. It is a thing that you learn how to be. Right. And so giving that language to your students and Matt, you were talking about even just saying, here's a place where I tried a thing and I failed. And look, I, I ended up successful. It's okay, Right. I think I think one of the the greatest gifts you could give to your students is to tell them when you failed in college, because especially if you think about a first generation student who is looking at their faculty and you have a doctorate and of course you've always been successful and I'm really struggling. Well, to be able to tell them, I want, I want to tell you about the time I got a 47 on an exam. Yeah. Cause that happened. And, you know, for college students to see that maybe even there was a professor who wrote a letter to has a very challenging course, but wrote a letter to students, put it in a syllabus and said, um, this is, I have high expectations for you, but I want to tell you about a time when I was faced with a real challenge and how I overcame it and how that has changed my life. Um, you know, being that, so for you all to be that positive voice for those students, they wouldn't expect it, but it's a way for you to build trust so that they can be honest with you about where they're struggling. And until you have that kind of conversation, it's really hard to give them kind of that, that pure support that they need. Right. Hey, I love what Lisa's saying, which is you have to tell parents that story as well Mm -hmm. to be able to say like, it's not like if your kid brings home a failing grade, then they're done. It's that this is a learning process and college is hard. And there's all, we all have stories where we're like, man, that class. Oh, right. right? Right. Yeah. I love that. So this idea of being a soft place for a student to land while having really high expectations we talk about that in terms of unconditional positive regard. And, you know, as you think about the teacher who had super high expectations for you, there was that, hey, I'm disappointed, you can do better um, piece of that. But there also was the, they love me, right? They want me to be successful. They're not being unkind to me. They're not, if they're just unkind, then I don't listen to them telling me that, that I, I can do better because they're a jerk. Right. But if they love me and they want to be close to me and they want me to be successful, then their expectations really have some um, teeth for me. 
So we talk about unconditional positive regard, which is I am on your team no matter what. And you will not get shame from me. There is no shame in anything that you're doing. There are natural consequences. So if you get a D, the consequence of that is that you have a D on that test. But come to me because we're going to figure out what to do and how to make sure that doesn't happen again. And so sometimes there's this feeling of like using the relationship to be the punishment for the mistakes that students or, you know, our family or our kids or whoever are making. I'm somehow going to exert my disappointment on you. And that's going to be the reason that you want to do better. But really what we're saying is I love you. I want you to be successful. There's nothing you could do that would make me stiff arm you and distance from you. Please come and be close to me so we can figure out how to help you be successful, which I think is so important. And the hardest thing about unconditional positive regard is you cannot fake it. Because you either have it for a person or you really are unhappy with them, right? And that makes it very hard for them to turn towards you. We talk about shame all the time, right? Like shame is turning away from a person, but what you want is for them to turn towards you and say, hey, please help me be successful in this. So I think that's a really key part of that whole process. Well, Rachel, so I was, I was, I don't know where this fits, but I I do think that there are some challenges that universities have in this, so we have a personal, unconditional positive regard for our student, but sometimes the school messages to the student in a way that that seems iffy. So when I think about the language of conditionally admitted and what that is already saying to a student. Yeah, it's horrible. I'm I mean, just telling you, we have language that we use all the time that we don't think about saying to a student, like, come in, we're gonna conditionally admit you. What is the message that we're sending? Like, good luck. We'll see about you. I don't. Yeah. I, I, you're setting me up with doubt. Yeah, we'll see. So, but we'll see. So, you know, I know our institutions do a good job of saying like, hey, this is what that means and how you can be fully admitted, no longer conditionally admitted, but maybe there's a a change in language that would best reflect what this relationship is, what the promise is. So like we talked about last week, well, what is the promise? So you did admit me, but it's tentative, right? It's iffy. I I love what you, you know, we'll see. I mean, you're here. We'll see. Yeah. So as, as we're thinking about this, I mean, what you really want to if we're trying to communicate both high expectations and high confidence, what we want to call it is admissions without reservation, right? So yes, there are these things that you're going to have to work to overcome with high expectations, but we also have confidence. So we're not, we don't have reservations about letting you in. We are going to provide the right support so that you can be successful here. Cause remember we said last week, If you admitted them, you told them that they could be successful here. And so we admit you without reservation. And here's how we are going to then face that challenge of you coming in underprepared academically or whatever. So I think uh, let's change conditionally admitted to um, admitted without reservation. That'd be great. I would be so happy if I got admitted without reservation. Yes, please. Well, please have unconditional positive regard for me. Yeah. You admitted me. I want to be a part of your environment and, and community. And so. Okay. So I want to talk about tangible um, reminders of achievement. I know you have a lot to say of this. So I want to set the stage and then you can kind of lead us through it. Um, one thing that is really, really hard about the first semester, maybe even two years for a college student is that 15 weeks or 30 weeks is a long time to try a thing and fail. So it's like, it's like you have 15 weeks and if it takes you four weeks to learn how to do it well, you have so much success debt that it's hard to recover. And so it's why three weeks is a great idea for freshmen. Cause it's like, yes, maybe you failed one class. It took you three weeks to figure out how to study and how to be a successful college student, but then you can be really great at these other ones. And so thinking about 
for college students, how do we break down this long cycle of failure and success into into smaller, more tangible things where they can celebrate more often they're doing a great job, right? Yeah. So I I think, first of all, how do you set up to that first generation student? How do you communicate to them that they're doing a great job? And like you said, so many times we're so late in telling them they're doing a great job that they could be discouraged in that process. Yeah. And to be fair, not um, spending our energy on students who are not doing a great job, which is understandable because they need help, but also you have to tell students if you're doing our stoplight survey and students are getting a green, you should be saying you're doing an awesome job. Hey, you just started college and you are doing a great job. Excellent work. I have had right? a five of your professors wanted me to know that you're doing a great job. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the whole thing that we we're talking about, you, I know that I get on my soapbox about tangible reminders um, on the Myers-Briggs. I am not an S, but in stress I am. And what that means is like, okay, so what, what can I hold on to as I'm dealing with something and and it's very stressful? What is more concrete for me that I'm doing well? What are the, what are indicators of I'm, I'm achieving what I need to. Yeah. And And so I, or that, that, you know, for whatever we're trying to, to convey to a student, you are successful or whatever. So we're just talking about what are, when do you tell a student and how do you tell a student you're doing a great job or, Hey, I know this was challenging, but I'm on your team and, and I'm here to support you. And what, what's interesting, Rachel, is that as you, you know, I know we both have fourth graders, elementary school teachers are amazing at this. They're so good. There's like a traffic light and you have clothespins and they're like, you're doing great. You're now not, you're yellow. You went back to green. This is so, right? Right. And then you get like rewards and you get Snickers and you get whatever. And I told you the other day, so our school does million word reader. So first of all, that is the goal. It's arbitrary, but the school said like, Hey, elementary students can read a million words. And so just by making a tangible reward for that, they are driving students success and vision towards a positive thing. And I told you the other day, I asked my daughter who likes reading more than math, but she's very good at math. I was like, why do you like reading more than math? And she's like, because when I get a million words, I get a sign in my front yard. They announce me on the, um, there's like a parade announcements. I get a t-shirt. They come to my classroom that setting the goal and then giving her those tangible things sets her vision towards success, right? We're not saying like, you should read more. We're saying a million words is the goal. And here are the ways that you're going to know that you've been successful. And side note, if anyone knows of a math program like that, where you get a sign in your yard, I need to know (laughs) because I got to figure that out with her. But tangible ways to know that we're doing a great job, I think are super important. You know, we've talked about that. Um, So I love what you said about the stoplight survey. It it would be really meaningful for, um, you know, a professor to write a note in the third week. Could they, could they um, write a handwritten note to the students who are really um, shining? Or Lisa, if I think about, you know, if, if you have faculty partners and you could, you could just say like, Hey, um, some of those great faculty who would love to just, Tell a student early on, not not the red light, yellow light. We're going to take care of them, but the, the green lights. Um, yeah. So many times I, I think about, you know, students who are referred early on in our system. And as you're working with them and you start to see progress, we've talked about having a physical success coin to give to them where you say to them like, hey, you've overcome this challenge. And then from then on, they have that coin. Uh, we, we know of a school that uses acorns. Um, and they give the student an acorn when that student has achieved a success or overcome a challenge. Um, That's very similar to like Alcoholics Anonymous, right? What they do for just a reminder, ongoing reminder, tangible reminder of overcoming a thing and sticking to it. Yeah. So So we think about the diploma as a tangible outcome of having gone to school. That's a really long time to wait for a tangible thing. And so Matt, I don't, 
I don't have a great answer for this. This is going to be a thing that I'm thinking about this semester and into the next semester. And that is, um, you know, the Gottmans who are marriage experts. One of the things that they say is small things often. And so thinking about in a freshman year, what are the small things often that we can do that tell a student you're doing a great job? We want you to remember this place. You did a hard thing. You made your brain bigger. Remember how when you started the semester, you did this on your test. And then here's what you've learned. Helping them with that narrative of, look, you are college material and you are growing and you're changing and you're going to be successful and do a great job. Small things often, I think, is really, really uh, an important piece of that. So the diploma obviously is, is the tangible big reward, but it is four or five years later. Yeah, I, I was thinking about, you know, when you make the dean's list, that might be the first time that a, that a first generation student would have heard that they achieved like, oh, you're, you're not just getting A's, but you're on the Dean's list. But even that right is way late in the semester. I mean, after the semester. So yeah, small things often I'm going to be thinking about how do we use a schedule of how we reward our freshmen with tangible things. So for those of you joining us, our partners, um, please help us walk through that too. And and thinking about uh, your campuses and, and ways ideas that you have would be really helpful yeah, as we sure. build that. Okay, So I have an action item for you and it is both a thing that I want to teach you. And then also a thing that I think would be really helpful for you to actually do. So it comes from, again, this book, I'm like real slow reading it because it's kind of blowing my mind. Um, Burnout, sorry, it's called Burnout, and it's by sisters. I don't know how to say their last name. Nagosaki, Soski, N A G O S K I. They talk about something that's called a healthy monitor, and it has like a real fancy psychology term. But they're like, every time we tell you, Lisa, have you read that book? It's amazing. It seriously is changing my life. Um, I cannot recommend it enough. It's amazing. So it had this, what I'm about to talk to you about has a very fancy psychological term, but they say every time they say it, everyone falls asleep. So they just call it the healthy monitor. And the healthy monitor is the part of your brain that keeps track of three different things. It keeps track of your goal. It keeps track of how hard you are working towards that goal. And then it keeps track of your progress towards that goal. So it's constantly saying like, here's what I want to accomplish. Here's how hard I'm working. Here's where I've made this much progress towards it. Okay. So most of the time, the healthy monitor is in good shape and it's like, you're doing a good job. You're doing a good job. Okay. Here's what you accomplished today. But sometimes it goes crazy because it's calculus is like, you're doing a terrible job and you can't accomplish what you want. Okay. So an example of this, Matt, you remember this story that you and I, one time were doing a presentation for school and I'm standing up in front of the projector at the front of the room with a bunch of people. And I'm trying to point something out to them and our PowerPoint is going crazy. It's zooming in and out, zooming in and out, zooming in and out. So every time I point the thing moves, And it does it. I feel like it did it for like two minutes. Your assessment that it was like 10 seconds, right? Right. Well, my healthy monitor is like, I'm trying to explain this thing. Every time I point, I fail. I am making no progress towards my goal for ever. And what happens with your healthy monitor is it honestly is like, you should just quit trying right now. You should just give up. You're never going to accomplish this thing. I literally wanted to sit down on the floor and just be like, I cannot, like, there's nothing to be done here. Right. I saw that in your eyes. Yeah. Just like you start to slow. I'm not making any progress towards the goal (laughs) that I am working towards. So we all have this in our lives. If it's supposed to take you eight minutes to get to the grocery store and you're, there's a big traffic jam and you're sitting there and it's been an hour. What happens in your brain when it's like, get me out of this car because I cannot do this anymore is your healthy monitor is like, it's not going well. We're making no progress. Right. So one of the things that they say, a way to um, define success is to not have crazy town, huge goals, but to actually in very specific terms, 
give yourselves attainable, measurable goals that you're, that are not going to make your healthy monitor crazy. So we're not talking about graduating from college yet. All we're doing is talking about going to every single class for the first three weeks. Um, we're not talking about you and I were talking about like, yes, the giants want to win the Super Bowl. But we're not talking about that. We are talking about can you snap the ball so your quarterback can then make a touchdown? A very small, yes, a very small, measurable piece. So um, I think you have the list, Matt. As you're looking at giving your students goals that will not make their brain crazy, make them feel like I'm never going to get anywhere. I'm not making progress. I have to have how many credits? And I've achieved 15 Oh my gosh, I'm not, I don't know that I can do this for another four years or five years or whatever. This is the list um, of things that you want to be considering. Is the goal soon, certain, positive, concrete, specific, and personal? So I'm going to give you an example of this. Um, defining winning for a student who does not have a major. So I think about what is the very first thing that I can do for a student that doesn't have a major? Well, the soonest thing that I can do for them is I can change undeclared or undecided, which means I don't know what is wrong with you. You haven't done this thing. I can change that today to deciding because that means you are involved in a process and you're working on it. And that is immediate. That's not a like, and eventually I'm going to have a major and won't that be nice? No, we're talking about right day, right now, today, changing it from why, what is wrong with you? Why haven't you done this thing to you're working super hard? Okay. So the first goal is we're going to change that language. Um, then you have this named process pathlight. We're going to say you are a deciding student and we have a process. It is certain. I promise you, if you will spend five weeks with me, you're going to end up in a better place, right? The positive part of that goal is that you're making a great choice. Not what is wrong with you? Why can't you pick? But you are going to make a great choice because it's going to be super informed. And that is a positive goal that we have. It's concrete. It's five weeks. It's specific. We have a name for it. And then it's personal. It's going to help you choose or confirm a great major. And you're going to feel so confident and so good about it once you do that. That takes that goal from like, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? You need to pick it now that you're 18 so that we can get on with it, which is going to make your healthy monitor insane to nope, you're in a process, you're in a program, five weeks, stick with me. You're going to make a great choice. Right. Right. So helpful for students and it calms them down. And it teaches them a healthy way of processing, build, building a path. Exactly. And it's a process for life. So not only are you going to pick your major, you're going to learn this process for the rest right. of your life and you're going to be successful in it. So I think that's a great example of how we take something gigantic. What's the meaning of your life? And we make it more concrete. And you and I talked about this with first generation students also to say, I am going to give you this goal. It is soon in the first week of your classes. You are going to do something certain. You're going to go introduce yourself to your faculty and ask them a question. What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite candy bar? This is what you're going to do, right? It's positive. So they will know you. Yeah. You have so much to offer. You need to go introduce yourself so they'll know who you are. It's concrete. You're just going to say, hi, I'm Rachel. Nice to meet you. What's your favorite candy bar? Specific one introduction and personal. I love this. You're going to do it not just so they know you, but because what you gained when we admitted you to this college is access to amazing faculty who are going to invest in you and be great mentors, and they're going to teach you, and you're going to be so happy to be close to them. And so I'm saying go meet this faculty member because it is part of the privilege of being in this institution and having access to people and brains like this. And that's super achievable. Um, for a student and will help them feel like if I just do these things that people are telling me every week, I can go on to be successful. Well, I love that. When I think about teaching and having um, student athletes in my class, 
I always loved them because the coaches had, yeah. had prepped them for this, right? Like yes. sit in the front row. You need to be attentive, attend every class. Like, all, like these are the rules for you to be successful in a class. But what I loved about it, the, the student athletes who would come up to me after class and, and introduce themselves, it was so neat to have that connection. And then I was on their team, you know, yeah. I, yeah, and it, sure. it was, it, yes, this is going to be a challenging class, but I'm going to be with you all through it. So Matt, you are saying even to say to faculty, hey, guys, we are going to tell our first generation students to come up and introduce themselves to you. And that's your opportunity to then be able to know who these students are and to pour into them and to pay yeah. more attention and be a little yeah. more intrusive. Um, just as a, this is a student that we are slowly teaching how to be successful, right. In college, which I, I think love, I, so would, fun. I would love that if, yeah. if, um, you know, that was a part of the partnership between student success and, and the faculty is to say like, Hey, we're really investing in encouraging them to come and, and get to know you. Well, I love that because that, that then gives me kind of my flock. These are the students who, um, I, I will keep up with. Yeah, for sure. So this idea of setting expectations, I mean, it's really all connected to an idea that we can grow, an idea that we can face challenges and receive support so that this is an opportunity, right? This access that we have to education. But it also is about helping our students set their goals and making sure that they have a clear vision for not only what's appropriate, but what is going to make their life better, help them grow, give them um, longevity and and um, this this changing student development piece of coming to college, right? It's not just learn your lesson, it's develop as a person. Well, and that's what we're all here for, right? Yeah. So um, how, do we, how do we develop the student? Because going back to the very beginning, we all believe in this transformational power of higher education and when, once they're on our campus, what a great opportunity we have uh, to shape them, develop them over the next four or five years as they earn their degree. So absolutely. Um, thank you all for joining us. Yeah, good to spend time with you next week. Um, Anthony will be with me and we will talk about the next condition of student success. But in the meantime, please know that we're thinking about you. We know you guys are working really hard and setting high expectations for your students to be successful. So yep, next week we are talking about support, which is great. Thank you all. All right, happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday.